1: Welcome to Power Lunch. I am Steve Leisman alongside Kelly Evans in for the irreplaceable Tyler Matheson. Market's getting a reality check this morning after soaring to new highs on hopes the Fed would cut sooner rather than later. The Fed's John Williams telling me, I'm not talking about rate cuts right now. Not really, anyway. That's what he says.
2: That was a great interview today. We'll talk a lot more about it. All three major averages are still on pace for their seventh week of gains in a row. But our trader says with a rally like this, some have gotten ahead of themselves. We'll get his take on three names with big gains recently. Give you a quick check on the market action we were just referencing. Dow's down 60 points at this hour. S&P down a quarter percent. NASDAQ trying to stay positive in danger of giving up those gains. And Apple hitting an all-time high today, although the stock is still underperforming the broader markets, not even up 1% this week.
1: Costco also hitting new highs today after its earnings beat, and the company's going to share the wealth, announcing a special dividend of 15 bucks a share. That amounts to $6.7 billion. Let's begin with the tug of war between the markets and the Fed starting Wednesday afternoon with Fed Chair Powell's response to a question about when and how the Fed will decide to cut rates.
3: We're aware of the risk that we would... Uh, hang on too long. You know, we, we know that that's a risk and we're very focused on not making that mistake.
1: The markets clearly took that to mean cuts would be coming sooner rather than later. The Dow soaring to new all time highs. But this morning I spoke with New York Fed President John Williams and he tried to, I don't know, inch back, yank back the rope a little bit from Wall Street.
4: We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the, the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2 percent? That's the question in front of us. That's what we've been really thinking about for the past five months and I think we'll be continuing to think about for some time.
1: Let's talk about all this, what's in the cards for 2024 with our panel of experts. Joining us now, Matt Orton, Chief Market Strategist, Raymond James, Investment Management. On set, Ron Insana, Chief Market Strategist at Dynasty Financial Partners, also a CNBC contributor and a longtime colleague and friend of mine. Ron, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start with you. Make
5: sense of what John Williams was saying and what Fed Chair Powell was saying. No, I can't make sense of what John Williams said. Okay. Right? Because if you look at the dot plots, you look at what Jay Powell said yesterday, Clearly, they got easing on their mind. You know, they, they know that inflation has been defeated. They know that it's come down considerably. They know it's going to go down more. There's really nothing out there in the pipeline that would suggest inflation is going to reaccelerate. And so they're going to want to go to neutral at some point. They're restrictive. I think they're sufficiently restrictive. They've been sufficiently restrictive. So maybe they walk it back just because the market response was so dramatic as, and maybe more than they wanted. But that doesn't mean that they're not thinking about it. That's my takeaway is is an attempt to sort of claw back a little bit of the massive. I don't um, know why they bother. Right. I mean, they rang the bell. Right. I mean, they rang the bell. So rates are coming down. Stocks are going up. You mean that in Pavlovian
1: sense So everybody's been salivating? uh, I mean, they actually rang the bell when they went when they paused. Matt, do you want to chime in on this? Where is uh, where is the center of the board here? What's the best outlook for what the Fed does in the near term?
3: Yeah, you know, Steve, I agree with what's been said. I think Williams was just trying to walk back the market expectations a little bit. But the market has had a pretty good tendency over the past year to get ahead of itself. I mean, we saw the same thing happen when the market refused to accept higher for longer and it had to match and move to where the Fed was. And now I think it might be getting ahead of itself with respect to the degree of rate cuts not so much that rate cuts are coming you know i've been saying for a while that we've reached the peak in this cycle but i think we've gotten a little over our skis in thinking that march and even january is the time when the fed's going to start cutting rates and so what i remind our clients is that what a winning strategy has been over the past year it's been waiting for the market to come to you being opportunistic with downside when the market when the market gets ahead of itself when you have overreactions to new news and so continue to wait for that to happen now. Don't chase the market higher and lean into higher quality investments. Because if rates are going to come down dramatically, I'm not so sure what that says about the economic outlook. I've always been in a rolling recession camp. But right. I think selectivity is going to be much more important going forward.
1: I mean, in that sense, Ron, John Williams could be saving you a few bucks today. Whether or not you agree <laughs> with how he said it, The idea that the market was all in, and I mean that in the clearest sense of a a Texas Hold'em game with, you know, all my
5: chips, I'm in on March.
1: Yeah. That's probably the wrong play here. Who cares? Well, when well, I was born more. in
5: 1961, the Dow was at 660. Right, <laughs> It's at 37,000. So if you're playing for nickels and dimes around whether the Fed's going to do this in March, whether they're going to do it in May, you know whether we're going to have a bull market run in 2024, which, by the way, is a fourth year of a presidential cycle, right. if the Fed is easing, you've got tailwinds that will push the market higher. I don't think you try to time the market here. They're giving right. you a fairly clear signal that risk assets will be more attractive as the cost of capital comes down.
2: Maybe the only way to ask it then is to say, do they look at the reaction the last couple of days and just think, well, we just brought forward all of 2024 and this is getting ahead of itself?
5: Yeah, but the, the reaction function, as, as you're hinting to, Kelly, is, is really around unemployment and inflation, not necessarily around market behavior. I mean, every other cycle mm-hmm. that I've seen, the markets get out in front of the Fed. They get out in front of everything. And and, and that and the Fed plays catch up, not the other way around. So I, I, I wouldn't be trying to time things here. And, yeah, you, know, you might see a pullback because we've gone pretty far pretty fast. But. If we're entering an easing cycle, that's historically been very good for equities.
1: Matt, let's just say I got, I don't know, Queen Jack in my uh, uh, instead of pocket aces. Tell me what to do right now. Is it a good time to get is it too late to buy one year, two year, three year notes right now? Or is there another better, more interesting way to to put money to work in the fixed income world?
3: No, I don't think it's too late because rates are coming down, and I think the front end still has a long way to move. But I think for for longer term investors, hold on, Matt, I want be... I want to cut
1: you off there. When you say the front end, are you talking about two and shorter from there? And, two, two and, and shorter. Exactly. Okay, so where are we at now on the two? We're 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 down near, you know, 420. Was that the latest we were at there? Sorry, I, I missed that. I missed that thing. But where's it going, Matt?
3: So I I think we're going south of four because if we do have a softer landing, if the Fed does continue to cut, we're we're going to see we're going to see a steepening of the curve. I mean that's been a decent trade to play, and I think you know we're seeing some bull steepening happening right now. But beyond just looking at the treasury market, Steve, I, I, I like to remind investors as well that there's a lot of really good high quality corporates, even double B's in the high yield area. And what's most important to realize is the increase in yields that you've had in the corporate space for this year. Most of that has been the risk free rate increasing. It hasn't been so much. Spreads widening out dramatically, and so you're getting a unique opportunity—the best opportunity, I would say, over the past 13, 14 years—to to get high-quality investment-grade, high-quality, high-yield debt at incredibly attractive rates. Where most of that move has been because of the risk-free yield.
2: The only, Ron, I just want to circle back on one thing you said, which is that historically, easing cycles are bullish. Obviously, that's not true in a recession, right? So, it, did, it actually did, is. Well. But the then what do you mean by the easing cycle? Because, so,
5: so the Fed eases in response to whatever. Right. Let's say the commercial real estate debt that's coming due needs to be refinanced. That creates a little quasi-systemic issues. Normally they ease because
2: payroll reports or jobless right. claims or something, you know, are, are. – turning south. And
5: so yeah. markets always look across the valley, right? And so markets will bottom before the re- the economy does. Markets take but off. But they have it- to go
2: down first. Well, they just did. <laughs> but,
5: but do you think- And yeah, 2022 was so, really rough, so the, right? So the
2: stats we know, like that the market typically, bear markets or whatever, when recessions hit, the market typically sells off 30%. So if we are going into a downturn, we still would have yeah. to expect that kind of sell-off. It's just that you think We don't this time. And so this easing cycle might be one of the few that's predicated not on economic downturn, but literally just on disinflation.
5: Yeah. And I would guess that if we have a recession, barring some unforeseen catastrophe somewhere in the world, it would be mild, right, that that maybe we go to four, four and a half percent unemployment, which back in the old days used to be considered full employment. So it was five percent. And if we're disinflating, as you suggest, then that's also good for equities because rates will come down and, and be I don't know if you want to call it uh, immaculate disinflation which right, is like right. Ray Dalio type expression or what have you but you know China's exporting deflation too so I think you've got more tailwinds than headwinds going into 2024.
1: Right I want to pick up on what you just said. I don't want to parse your words too much but from what you just said it sounded like you don't think the seeds of the next recession are planted yet that no, there's I- another shock that would come that would create that recession that we escape what we've been through without that recession.
5: I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think we could have a mild recession in the first half of next year, but it doesn't have to be catastrophic, right? In mm-hmm. 94, 95, that type of thing, uh, even 97, 98, when we did have some large-scale events take place. And I don't know if commercial real estate debt, multifamily real estate debt that needs to be refinanced next year will be a big enough shock to throw us into a recession, but it will probably be a big enough one to get the Fed to ease.
1: Matt, in, in such a scenario, is it a, a heads-eye-win-tells-you-lose-world when it comes to corporate bonds? Um, can I still do well in those same uh, uh, tenors and, 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 and um, uh, uh, rating bonds, the B's and the and, and even the C's, if we do have a recession?
3: I don't think so. I, no. I don't think I don't think the C's are, are going to perform incredibly well. It goes back to, to the biggest theme I've been talking with clients about, which is you have to lean into quality. You know, selectivity hasn't mattered that much because we've had such significant macro distortions impacting the overall market. But going forward, even if we avoid a recession, growth is still slowing. There, there's going to be where we're going to know who who's out with their their pants down going mm-hmm. forward and you're going to want to own higher quality corporate debt. So to me, you need to own companies that are profitable or generating uh, free cash flow and actually have earnings momentum moving forward. And that applies on the equity side of the equation as well. Uh, So I think for fixed income and and equities, the playbook with respect to quality is is very, very similar. And and there are still plenty of opportunities in this market. You know, recession or no recession, the Average stock this year is not at all reflective of of what the indices, broadly speaking, have done. And so there's a tremendous opportunity when there's such bifurcation in this market for investors to be selective and actually own good companies uh, that can beat the market going forward. So I think as market breadth expands, which I expect it will in 2024, owning that breadth is where you're going to be successful.
1: And breadth as wide as owning India was something that we had in your notes there. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think emerging markets are emerging again and India has been my top pick for the past two years. And I still think India continues to do well going forward because you've got this great combination of significant infrastructure development. India has won yeah. as China has lost and you've got margin expansion and earnings growth. And that's a great cocktail for, for markets we, to continue to go higher.
1: We have to do a segment on India one of these days because every yeah. time in my 20 years as a business reporter, India seems to get it right, it finds a way to to mess it up over time. Yeah,
5: I'll tell you what, the, that market's up among the few Asian markets that are doing better this year. And if the dollar were to continue to go down, selectively investing okay. overseas makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Matt, Matt Ron, thank you very thank you. much. And uh, quick programming note, don't miss my exclusive interview. On Monday with Chicago Fair President Austin Goolsbee. That's at 830 Eastern time Squawk Box. a phone Squawk call Box. about
5: rap music, if you wouldn't mind.
2: And I can, can I quickly interject, guys, in the back? It's just your show. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> momentito. moment, Tito, in the past hour or so, since we have our senior economic reporter uh, Steve Leisman, sitting here, we've had... Uh, Goolsby himself talking about how the Fed did not rule out the possibility of cutting rates at its meeting in March. That was what he told the Journal. We've had Bostick saying two rate cuts in 2024 yep. in the third quarter yep. to Reuters. So at, at odds with the. Message <laughs> Guess what they're going to do next year? <laughs> that Williams. Uh, well, was
1: out a of lot this of this, this is going to happen. I think the conversation that we just had is really important because things are shifting and moving, and that changes. Uh, it was easy to clip coupons, put your feet up, put your money in a money market fund. And you were going to get four or five percent.
5: That's going to chill for the first time in 15 years. Right? If Matt
1: is right, (laughs) that number is going to come down. And the thing that I've been screaming about on this show and others is the problem with a one year note is that it's one year. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It
1: means you have to make another decision after Mm -hmm. six months or a year and maybe you'll be perfectly happy. Maybe Matt is right. There's more for. More, more, more for it to come down in terms of the yield. The, no, uh, if you the were yield.
2: hoping to get into the stock market down 30% after that one year and instead it's up that much, uh, that's a very different
5: that's story. That's why you barbell, right? You buy short and long-term treasuries and you can roll out of the short term and add to risk. And whatever you do,
1: it do it exhausting. Do it slowly over time. Don't try to time the market. I think Correct. dollar cost averaging in is the most boring thing, but there's a bit of a free lunch in that. <laughs>
2: coming up. Yes. We've talked about the stock market impact of the Powell pivot and the Williams walk back. We'll have more on the reaction in the bond market in just a moment. And as we head to break, take a quick look of shares of Darden restaurants, slightly lower after an earnings beat and upbeat guidance. Investors, though, are focused on the revenue miss and drop in same restaurant sales, which the company attributed, at least in part, to customers spending less on alcohol. Power Lunch will be right back.
6: Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your
7: pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com/slash-get-in-the-seat or visit a dealer near you. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: Welcome back to Power Lunch. Bond yields continuing to fall today, including today's losses. The 10-year yield is down 30 basis points on the week. Let's get to Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick, Fed talking... Bond yields moving, sleigh bells
6: ringing, you live for this moment. (laughs) Well, I can tell you this. We had three central bankers meet this week. Of course, we had the Fed, Bank of England, and the ECB. And what's fascinating is, of course, is that all held pat, but all the patterns in their markets are very similar. And that's important because there are certain characteristics about global growth, of course, and inflation that are going to be shared. Now, granted, there's some unique aspects to each economy, but it really pays at this point to pay attention to all three central banks and the short maturity and long maturity markets. Now, let's look at short maturities. If you look at a two-year, we're going to look at two-year in three different settings. Uh, The U.S., of course, uh, the European Union and the U.K., and we're going to start them all in May. And as you can see as you go through, we're hovering almost unchanged, Steve. We settled at 443. We're hovering at 441. And we're also down in the 30 basis point camp in a two-year, although that number's getting a bit smaller as the long end, of course, short end is rallying uh, rates here as prices fall. Now, as you look at Boons, they closed, and they closed at Well, 254, which means they're well below their 276 settlement at the end of last year. And finally, if we look at gilts, they're hovering at 428, well higher than their 353 settlement at the end of last year. And we really want to pay attention to the UK because their markets, especially in the short end, have been a bit more aggressive in terms of their staying power at higher rates. But all this is key And the main reason it's key is because there's definitely less inflation in the globe, but there's also less growth. The U.S. is leading the charge on that side of the equation. And depending on how the European growth factors into the U.S. growth, ultimately, we have to mesh all the strategies of the central banks. And my opinion is they're all going to be easing around the same time. The issue is exactly when in 24 that begins. Back to you.
2: Yeah, it's super interesting. The whole, you know, we might lose before they do, but their economies are weaker thing. To be continued, Rick, thank you. The sharp drop in yields to end of the year may help bonds from delivering their third down year in a row. But do you want to own them going into 2024? And if so, which ones? Joining us now is Michael Kushma, Morgan Stanley Investment Management CIO of Broad Markets Fixed Income. Michael, incredibly different tone today than if the year had ended on, call it, August 15th, isn't it? It's
8: it's the the mirror image uh, earlier this year in September, with strong growth in the U.S. in the third quarter and, and accelerating growth, it seemed um, the Fed no raising raising rates likely again. Ten-year bond yields at five percent, two-year notes at five percent. It looked like another dire year for fixed income, and it all turned around in the fourth quarter.
2: So, where would you find the most value then? I was even reading David Zervos's note over at Jefferies, but he's talking about, you know, looking at fixed income and, and kind of where you'd want to be positioned in 2024 for this kind of soft landing period we appear to be going through. What would you say?
8: Well, it seems to me that, that it's very, very likely the Fed cuts interest rates next year. Inflation is coming down, the economy is decelerating into next year. We don't know how weak it'll be, but it is decelerating from the pace in the second half of 2024. Um, the question is, when and how much is the Fed going to cut interest rates? Right now, the market is very aggressive on rate cuts occurring even in the end of Q1 in March of next year, which seems to be on the early side. There's no reason for the Fed to panic and have to cut interest rates unless something really strange happens in the world. So we would say that uh, overall, um, you know, higher higher quality bonds, even high yield bonds are looking pretty good, but don 't expect the returns that we got in two, and it looks like we 're going to get in two thousand and twenty three to repeat in two thousand and twenty four so we 're not likely to see on um, the level of interest long term interest rate drops in le- that we've seen lately in two thousand and twenty four
1: Michael, do you expect there to be money coming from the uh, money market funds into the treasury market into the corporate bond market or Will it not
8: pass go and go right into the stock market? It's a very good question. There's a lot of money sitting in cash. As as you might might think, with interest rates as high as they are in money market funds, uh, over 5%, um, why extend extend maturity? And that was the right strategy until Q4. And I think there is a a potential fear of missing out that you don't want to be sitting in cash when cash goes from five and a half to four next year, potentially, and equities are up, you know, seven, 5 to 10% next year, and bond yields are down another 25, 50 basis points, generating, again, superior returns to cash. Um, I think it's more likely to go into investment-grade bonds in particular. I think it's it's, it's it, it might jump all the way from cash to equities, but equities are the riskier end of the financial market spectrum. So I think the intermediate jump would be to corporate bonds, both investment-grade and high-yield which are still offering attractive yields from a long-term perspective. Again, they've come down a lot. We are talking about 5% plus yields and inflation on its way to two, a 3% after inflation real yield on high quality corporate bonds looks pretty attractive. So I would think that would be the part of the market which attracts the most interest the soonest.
1: So that's an important distinction because what you're saying is don't be mad that you missed the high yield rates. You be 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 thankful I guess or or jump on the opportunity that you're getting still or a, a, a good real return because the reason the Fed will be cutting rates is because inflation
8: is coming down which flatters your nominal yield, right? It, 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 exactly. And because the Fed has pur- providing a somewhat of a put on the economy, they're saying we will be cutting interest rates even right. if the economy does okay next year. The probability of a recession next year is dropping, and that's very supportive. As we've seen for equities, for corporate bonds, high yield bonds, it's good for all those elements. Not so good for U.S. Treasuries because if there's no recession, the, the amount of rally you can have in Treasuries is, is somewhat circumscribed.
1: Michael, this is really just the beginning of a conversation. I'm glad you joined us today to start it, at least. And I think we'll have to have you back because there's so many more questions about where to put that money in terms of the corporates and and whether or not it sounds to me when you said that the Fed is underwriting and put it put on the economy, I might want to stretch out into junk a little bit because my risk of default the, is even Kush, lower.
2: Talk him off the cliff, Michael. This is the second time he's mentioned junk this I'm hour. I'm trying to get into he's junk. He's trying to get into high, high yield
1: bonds. Wanna, but but if you're telling me there's a put and, and, and the default
8: rates are still built into the yield, then I get a gift, don't I? You, you potentially do, yes. Ah. Um, fundamentals from that perspective look very good. So credit spreads should be narrower than they are on average. If we are really confident there won't be a recession next year and corporate cash flows hold up. So bonds high yield may look a bit expensive today, but if the macro story turns out OK next year, which looks like it will, they'll be fine. Like it. Come on, Kelly. There's a, if you're really
2: confident. Triple you go, C minus, you go let's do it. C
1: minus. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining us. We
2: appreciate it.
1: All right, coming up when remote work comes with a side of anxiety. Citigroup telling most of its employees to work from home through the end of the year, but with a corporate restructuring looming, many are reportedly scared they may not have a job to return to in the new year. We're gonna get the key details when power lunch returns.
7: Welcome back to Power Lunch. Turmoil continuing
1: at Citigroup. Our Houston, just learning the company has told most employees to work from home for the final two weeks of the year. And while that might sound nice, it's worrying some. CNBC.com banking
4: reporter Hussan joining us now on set. Steve, it's great to be with you. Yeah, so this is sort of a holiday gift from Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser. She says, uh, listen, uh, you know, everybody's try- you know, t- tired of, of the year we had. You can take the last two weeks. December 18th to 29th, you can work from home. You can work remotely from anywhere in the country in which you work. Mm -hmm. Now, the the context of that and where the reality kind of runs into uh, the facts here is, you know, she's got this project Bora Bora, right? She's got this reorg project in which. Can we we stop Bora Bora? (laughs)
3: Let's
1: think of a worse name to call or a more omin- a less ominous name to call a corporate restructuring. Bora-bora. Steve, if you
4: don't think the Tahitian sands and the azure waters of of
2: uh, Bora Bora are good,
4: I, I don't know. It just for, for cutting thousands me. of jobs. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 well, yeah. well,
2: I know we've asked you. But what was the rationale for that name? Do we ever find out?
4: You know, some some consultant in BCG knows the answer to that, Kelly. I do yeah. not. So we yeah. got paid for that name. Millions of dollars, Steve. Yeah. So,
1: so okay. I interrupted you. Go ahead.
4: Well, right. So so the context of this two weeks uh, that you can work remotely, you know, it's a gift and it's perceived as a perk. However, there is the, the issue that, you know, come January, you're not sure if you actually have a seat when you come back to the office. And that's the that's the, the spasm of anxiety that's running through cities, 240,000 workers. Most of them have this ability. Most of them can be hybrid. Uh, and yet now they have this perk. Stand
1: so the up. idea is, is work go ahead, work at home. There may not be a job for you when you come back is the concern.
4: That is certainly. And it the comes concern. right when
1: they're getting out of the Muni business.
4: Yeah, and so that's the other leg of the story, which is, you know, it's been reported and I've confirmed. Uh, you know, Citigroup and you know, Jane Fraser as part of this project board board is examining line by line, business by business, all the businesses in which they don't earn a great enough return. Typically in banking, that's at least 10% return on tangible common equity. So, you know, this muni business, which used to be a top five, top two business on Wall Street, is more like a seven or eight. It's a laggard, particularly because as you know, in uh, Texas doesn't deal with them anymore. Texas, one of the biggest markets for muni bonds uh, in the country. There was some uh, controversy over there over, over guns, and, and we don't have to get into that. But they've been flagging. And so, so, so Jane Fraser decided, look, made a hard decision. Even though there's a lot of uh, puts and, and takes here, we're out of this business, which is municipal bond trading and issuance. Is it the last business Citigroup might exit? So, yeah. I, I talked to a bunch of sources today after I saw that story. It is not the last. There are other low return businesses uh, which are ripe for, for the cutting. Uh, one person on the consumer side said, look, we've got this private label credit card business. Right. So you have a Brooks Brothers card. It works only at Brooks Brothers, Steve. And in this case, uh, you know, foot traffic at places like that, it's falling off a cliff. These types of, uh, of consumer businesses that don't earn a good return, also possible uh, for cuts.
1: What's the goal? What does Citigroup want to be? More profitable? <laughs> well, more profitable. But what, what should I know Citigroup as, the best at?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I think, first of all, the shareholders have been killed in this stock. If you put up a, a, you know, a, a screener of the stock over the 15 years, it's gone nowhere. So versus everybody else who's recovered, I'm talking about Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, B of A. Right. This has been a laggard. So that's the first thing is just stop killing the shareholders of right. the stock. Right, right. And, you know, in terms of the client side, they want to be known as the most global, the most client-centric of the firms. They want to be be big in
2: wealth management, as everybody else does. They've right. struggled there,
4: Steve.
1: Hugh, thanks very much for bringing us this story.
2: Jade Frazier has her work cut out, that is for sure. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for the CNBC News
9: update. Bertha? Kelly, Israeli military officials say troops mistakenly killed three hostages during a ground operation in Gaza. The IDF says the hostages were two soldiers and a civilian kidnapped from the Supernova Music Festival. Their bodies have been returned to Israel. A Connecticut appeals court upheld $75,000 in fines today against conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. He was charged the fee for not showing up to a deposition in a lawsuit by Sandy Hook families for calling the 2012 Connecticut school shooting a hoax. That suit eventually led to a $1.4 billion judgment. Jones said he had a medical problem that prevented him from making it to the deposition, but the court found he still managed to have lied broadcasts of his Infowars show at the same time. Jury deliberations resumed a few minutes ago in the domestic violence case involving Marvel actor Jonathan Majors. They're deciding whether Majors is guilty of assaulting his then-girlfriend in a struggle that allegedly began in the back of a car last spring. Majors has denied any wrongdoing and claims that he, she, actually assaulted him. Kelly.
2: Bertha, thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, AIR. For the first time, regulators are warning the use of artificial intelligence poses a risk to our financial system. Details when Power Lunch returns don't go anywhere.
1: The comeback in Bitcoin has been great news for Coinbase. The stock is up more than 300% this year, but falling today a little bit. Let's get to Kate Rooney for those details. Kate?
10: Hey there, Steve. So a setback for Coinbase today, the SEC denying its request for new crypto rules saying that existing rules that govern stocks, ETFs, they work just fine for crypto. SEC Chair Gary Gensler repeating a point that he has made before existing laws and regulations already apply to the crypto securities markets. He also says the SEC addresses the crypto markets through rulemaking and says it's important to maintain discretion regarding rulemaking priorities. He emphasized that while crypto does see outsized fraud relative to its size, it's still a very small portion of the $110 trillion capital markets. It says it's important that the commission maintain discretion on where to focus and which parts of the market need updated regulation. Coinbase's chief legal officer though, pray, Paul Graywall, telling me that the company does plan to respond in court later today, calls the denial arbitrary and capricious.
11: We will lay out why sensible rules for crypto uh, are not are not an, a special ask or, or a request for special treatment on the part of the industry. We're saying regulate this just like you regulate all sorts of other industries, but provide workable, sensible pathways so that issuers and exchanges like Coinbase and others can register, can come inside of the perimeter.
10: Coinbase is fighting separate charges by the SEC that it's operating as an unregistered securities exchange, which it also denies. It's going to Plead that case before a federal judge in January. Today's news, though, hitting shares of Coinbase and Robinhood as well, which has leaned heavily into crypto in recent years, too, guys. Back to you.
2: Kate, okay, thanks very much. Kelly. All right, a new government is meantime identifying artificial intelligence as a potential risk to the U.S. financial system. Deirdre Bosa spoke with the founder of One AI Startup about that for today's tech check. Deirdre?
0: Hey Kelly, and Gary Gensler as well, he had comments on AI and the risk. It's interesting because most of the focus this year, it has been on individual large language models and chatbots, there's OpenAI with GPT-4, Google has Bard, Anthropic's Cloud, But increasingly, regulators are starting to worry about the downsides of relying on just one of them or building applications, drawing from essentially just one set of data. It can lead to a single point of failure. It can amplify biases and lock in vendors, sort of like what we've seen in the cloud computing industry. The report this morning that you were referring to, it warns that, quote, the reliance of AI systems on large data sets and third party vendors introduces risks related to data controls. Privacy and cybersecurity. And this is something that Amazon has been talking about this year the idea that there won't be one model to rule them all. It's kind of been their tagline. We also spoke to a founder that is building his company on this very idea Builder.ai. Best way to describe it is like AI for dummies that draws from a number of large language models to build apps in a very non technical way. Here is its CEO, Sachin Devdogal, explaining how his product called Natasha is different than what say Microsoft and OpenAI are building?
3: A lot of people are building large language models um, where you can ask a question and you get specific answers. Um, you've got evolutions of that where you've got things that code complete, and you, know, you can help you complete a function or complete something in a programming language. Natasha's really different. Um, one, she's not based solely on LLM technology.
0: This startup, it's valued at about half a billion dollars with, surprise, surprise, a strategic investment from Microsoft. So it kind of has hands everywhere. But it's still the startups that are building the actual models that are getting the most funding and certainly the most buzz this week. A Paris-based OpenAI rival called Mistral AI closed a $415 million Series A funding round at a $2 billion valuation, which, guys, is just an enormous amount for a Series A. That comes right after the seed round, and it tells you that there is still plenty of money out there for certain startups while elsewhere in the space. The gravy train, it is starting to slow, especially for the so-called AI wrapper companies. For more on the generative AI funding landscape, go to cnbc.com techcheckweekly. These are our in-depth videos that explain and go beyond sort of the headlines. Back to you guys.
1: Dear John, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me a kind of understandable metaphor here for understanding how that individual's model is different. Is it like I'm going to access and ask a whole bunch of Google and Bing and yeah. and all these other search functions at the same time? Is that what it's going to do? It's going to aggregate answers from different sources.
0: Let me, yeah, let me try and do this in like the least technical way possible. There are the companies that are building these foundational models, right? So they're getting information from many, many different places. It requires a ton of compute power, billions and billions of dollars of spending in the cloud. They require NVIDIA GPUs, things like that. A builder.ai, I guess you could call it like an AI wrapper company. So it's not actually creating those models. They don't have data scientists and researchers on their staff. They're building using those models. And so you often see that those kinds of startups are less valuable, right, because they don't need to pay for as much compute power, but they also don't really have anything proprietary.
1: I think I get it. That Deirdre Bosa explaining AI for dummies <laughs> is to AI for dummies. I try. Right. I try. That's what it is. It could
0: be a series. I am one, though.
1: It could be a series. AI for dummies, AI for dummies.
0: <laughs> From a oh, dummy.
1: That's my read here. Sorry about that. Deirdre, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Still ahead, the Millionaire Mindset will reveal the results of our latest CNBC Millionaire Survey, including... Where they say they're putting their money and what they think could derail the record rally, Power Lunch coming right back. All three major averages on pace to close higher for the seventh straight week, really driven by the hope that the U.S. economy will avoid recession instead, come in for a nice, soft landing. Robert Frank has been surveying millionaires for their thoughts on the market and the economy.
11: Robert Steve, good to see you. Millionaires still holding a lot of cash and they're worried about Washington. The CNBC Millionaire Survey, that's where we poll those with investable assets of a million dollars or more. It found that most millionaire investors say the S&P will be up at least 5% by the end of next year. Over 20% expect double digit gains in 2024. 21% expect markets to be flat. They're planning to keep about 40% of their portfolio in stocks next year, 18% in fixed income, still keeping a lot of cash, though, with 25% of their investments in short-term money markets and cash equivalents. Their favorite sectors for stocks next year are tech and financials. When it comes to the overall economy, though, millionaires are a bit more bearish. 42% saying the economy will be weaker or much weaker next year. Only 30% say it will be stronger. The biggest risk to the economy next year, they say, is government dysfunction. Inflation still also a big concern there, along with national debt. But millennial millionaires, they are still the most bullish. About half say the economy will be stronger next year, and more than a third say markets will be up double digits next year. Kelly?
2: I was just going to say, do, do we think we need to upgrade this to the billionaire survey at some point?
11: Anybody, yeah, right,
1: I mean...
2: I'm, 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 cur- I'm just throwing that out there. Steve, what were you going to say?
1: I was going to ask Robert if he knows the average age of the respondent, because I would think if you put that portfolio uh, breakdown up again, that looks like the portfolio of an older person. And I'm wondering how much that portfolio, uh, uh, per- those portfolio percentages are colored by the age of the people rather than their preference for one or the other uh, in- instrument.
11: Yeah, it's a great point, Steve. And just back up the reason, Kelly, that we pull millionaires—we'll get to billionaires. Maybe that could be good—is <laughs> that the millionaires hold about eighty-five percent of individually held stocks. So we track wow. this group because they have such an outsized influence right. on the market. To Steve's question, you're Steve, you nailed it, and you're absolutely right. You know, this is an older group. That the average age—I haven't checked in this specific survey—but in the past, it's the upper fifties, low sixties. So right. remember, it's net—it's net worth of a million dollars more. It's not not necessarily. High income. These are people that have saved over their lives to get a million dollars in net assets. So, uh, but we do break it out. There is a millennial component. There there are multiple Gen X and and boomers are all represented. So that's why we kind of break out by some of the demographics. But you're right, it tends to be a slightly older crowd by nature of it being invested assets as opposed to just high income.
1: And I'm going to just contradict myself with my late father, may he rest in peace, who passed on with the portfolio of a 32 year old.
2: Did he pass Good it on him. to you? He
1: did pass it on to me, and I had to sell it all because, God I, bless Why? because of conflict of interest rules.
2: Oh. Right. <laughs> such, a, such a savvy move by him. but Yeah, without, yeah. savvy move. Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up, we'll check the charts on some high-flying names that look overbought and ask our technician if he thinks they're trending toward a pullback. Power Lunch will be right back.
1: Welcome back. Time for some technical support. CNBC Pro out with a new screener today overbought stocks that could be due for a pullback following this market, this big market week we've had. And here to analyze some of those names is Jay Woods, Chief Global Strategist at Freedom Capital Markets. Jay, let's start off with Boeing.
12: Yeah, let's start off with Boeing. We're talking about stocks that are overbought. Okay. How do we measure overbought, oversold? We look at the relative strength index. An RSI reading of under 30 uh, means the stock is oversold and it is due to pause going down and possibly rally. A stock of an RSI over 70, and in this case, Boeing, is at 92, which is a historic level for Boeing, mm-hmm. means it's overbought. The stock has gone up over 50% in seven weeks since that October 27th low. And then if you look at the price action, I wanted to back it out over five years to give you an idea of what we're seeing in Boeing. Now, once again, my lines are a little wonky when I use this, and I apologize. But this level where we're coming into is around 270, 280. Um, we've made a okay. full circle back, but seeing that we've gone up so far so fast like a rocket ship, we want to see Boeing take off like an airliner, and it's going to probably pull back. So if you're looking to add is, it to this, Is there a period of time
1: it has to stay up there to be oversold? No, it's— Or if it just gets there, it's oversold? It, in, when it, yeah, in
12: this case, over overbought, and
1: yes. Overbought, it, you know, sorry, Once yeah. it's
12: there, it just tells you that right. it's it's getting tired. Overbought doesn't mean it has to reverse. It's just going to slow down the pace okay. of the rally. And in this case, I wouldn't add to this portfolio. I'd wait for a pullback, you know, somewhere uh, around 250, 240, I think would be a good place to buy Boeing. But uh, it's got a lot of work to do. I wouldn't add to
1: it at this point. Okay, let's move on from plane builders to home builders. Dr. Horton.
12: Well, home builders I like. Home builders have been one of the best acting sectors this year. Who knew? With mortgage rates, 8%, now back down to 7 But D.H. Horton, again, Historical levels on the RSI. The stock has made a tremendous move. Again, 50% in seven weeks. These are not normal. You get a nosebleed when you look up at these charts. So we've seen a 50% move here. Mm -hmm. The stock, though, I love. The setup is phenomenal. If you go back three years, we made back all of 2022 losses during 2023 and then broke above. And this is what we call a cup and handle. Uh, We have a nice rounded bottom and then a breakout, a retest of that level. And all these lines are making it a little confusing. But what I want to focus on right now is the stock is at all-time highs. I love that. But given the run, it's due for a pause, a possible pullback. I would buy this on weakness, a 5 to 10% pullback. But the
1: fundamentals have been good. They've really the survived the cycle here. Seven, eight percent mortgages and the home builders have done well. Yes, and with the recency bias, people
12: seeing eight percent, now it's seven percent. They're like, oh now we gotta run. It's out a bargain. And go. Exactly. exactly. Right, we gotta
1: move on. Let's look at Royal Caribbean. Royal Caribbean, this is a stock that uh, you
12: know, it's kind of gone up like the Titanic. And what happened? Don't say uh, that. No, I no, know, no, take I that know. back. Okay, I'm sorry. The, the jury will disregard. A, all right, we strike that from the record. But yeah, go ahead. what I like about it, it has made back all of its losses going back to to COVID. And if we were to go back another year or two, you see at 130 uh, at this level, we're at about 120 right now. This stock is in no man's land. I would probably stay away. I would buy on a pullback. So maybe that this level that it just broke above can act as support. But the risk reward setup to the downside is about the same to the upside. uh, I would rather wait and either short it as it got to 125, 130. Because or, it took two right. years to get that
1: at level, never broke above. and uh, we got to go. Was. Jay, I, I don't like technicals, but I thought this was really interesting. All right, well, it was fun but having you, you. You did a great job. Technicals and the fundamentals. Thanks to Jay Woods. Kelly.
2: <laughs> oh, so many headlines to get to, but so little time. We'll power through as many as we can in closing time next. Welcome back. About two minutes left in the show and several more stories you need to know about, starting with NVIDIA, which may be a victim of its own success. The stock has had a stellar year and many years, but according to reports, there's a downside. Some NVIDIA employees are so rich now, Steve, they no longer work as hard.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that. I think when people get older and richer, sometimes they work smarter. They may value their Free time more, but I mean, I guess that could happen. I mean,
2: this is my argument against busting up monopolies and hugely successful companies. Is that success takes care of itself in certain ways, you know? Okay, all
1: right. I'm I'm in favor of busting up monopolies because of the the price uh, uh, <laughs> effects. <laughs> well,
2: I don't think anyone's calling Nvidia a monopoly just yet, but it is interesting to watch how quickly all their major customers are trying to diversify.
1: Yeah, I think people do have to think about older people in the workforce. They are a major potential source of labor in a country that. Forget the vicissitudes of this month and next month. Mm Over time, is going to need more older workers, so you better figure out how to make it work. A gold rush at Costco. The warehouse giant says it sold more than $100 million worth of gold bars in its most recent quarter. The bars typically sell out within a few hours of being offered online, according to the CFO. How many people brought the gold bars home,
2: Kelly? Tried to take the peel off and thought there was chocolate inside. I would like to know how these are delivered, because you and I have held a gold bar. Yes. It's incredibly heavy.
1: Do you know that in the basement of the New York Fed... I do. They have these steel toe things that you put I on. I do, yes. Because if you drop a gold bar on <laughs> oh, your foot, literally. you'll break your toe.
2: That's what I wonder about. How are people getting and acquiring these gold so bars? So the
1: question is Costco putting a warning on the gold bars?
2: Maybe they must be a very small version, no? Wouldn't it's you think? counting down. We have 29 seconds. All right, let's wait. I always like to keep you updated on Shein and Timu. And Sheehan is now accusing Timu of unlawful and aggressive business tactics, including mafia-style intimidation. A lawsuit filed by Timu's U.S. parent company, WhaleCo says Sheehan is trying to thwart competition, Mm -hmm. etc., etc.
1: And just an update, I bought an old chair, a broken mirror, and some scrap metal in my search for
7: junk, which we talked about.
2: Uh, We need to get Howard Marks on. Exactly. Hall of the year. Thanks for watching Power Lunch.